Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First uh, Timothy chapter 3. The verse today, uh, it's only one verse. It's not a whole passage, just one verse. I was going to preach the whole passage, but got so caught up in this one verse that uh, I emailed Kelly saying, could you just put one verse, one verse only. So we're going to spend uh, our time looking at one verse. Uh, but because it is God's word, it goes deep. Um, and as it goes deep, we want to go deep with it to have a, a deepness, a depth to our love for God and our knowledge of God. So please hear now the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Apostle Paul writes to his beloved child in the faith, Timothy, these words. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, this one verse you have given to us is amazing because it is one of the earliest hymns that the church had written. And we thank you that in your word we get to see we're connected with believers from 2,000 years ago as we hear from you and we consider the great truths about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this afternoon I pray that you would really help us. We're in the middle of mid-March missions. This is our last week, God, I pray uh, that you would continue by your spirit and your word to press missions and the nations and all peoples on our hearts. Father, that from now on when we move sermon series and we start talking about other things, that it would not be out of sight, out of mind, but that it will continue to ferment. It may continue to uh, grow deep into our hearts, become a part of our desires, our, our, our love for you. Um, having a love for the nations, God. So continue to do that work. I pray that you would bless this time. And we lift this up to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so today is the second and the last week of what we are calling Mid-March Missions here at Cornerstone. Um, and so one of the things, uh, the reasons that we're doing this is really to promote missions. But not only pr to promote it, but to really have us um, believe that it's important. You know, my hope is that Global missions is not just something written on the banners and written in the bulletin, but global missions is written on your heart. So that when I stop talking about it and we go on to other things, that it really isn't just something we forget, but it really has become a part of our DNA uh, as a church, but also individually. And so last week when we looked at global missions, we considered the passage in 1 Timothy 2 where we saw that God reveals his heart, and his heart is this— I desire all people to be saved, and I've proven that by sending my son as a ransom for all. That was what we talked about last week. This week, what we want to talk about in Global Missions is, where does Global Missions fit in God's purpose and God's plan for the world? You know, history for us is something that we can only look back on, right? History for us is only, only something that we can look back and remember, but for God who stands outside of time, history is not something he needs to look back on. History is something that he is working out. He ordains all things to pass. So he is writing history. And as he's writing history, what that means is he is directing, he's governing, governing, he is leading the world in a certain direction. And so the question is, what is that direction? Where is all of this headed? 
That's what we want to consider today. And my text this afternoon is 1 Timothy 3.16, and from it I'd like to consider this gospel truth. The proclamation of Jesus Christ among the nations is fundamental to the purpose toward which God is directing human history. Now that's a mouthful, so let me read that again. The proclamation of Jesus Christ among the nations is fundamental to the purpose toward which God is directing human history. So all of history is, is being directed, is going a certain way. And one of the most important parts of that is the proclamation of Jesus to the nations. If you look here, the way Paul starts is he says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So first question, what is mystery? Now, for us, mystery is something that is a secret, something that is unknown. But the way the Bible uses mystery, or the way Paul uses mystery, is to say it's something that was once hidden, but is now revealed. So, what is this mystery? Paul calls it here the mystery of godliness. But if you actually look just a couple of verses earlier in the qualification for deacons, he had said in verse 9, they, mu- they must hold the mystery of the faith. So mystery of godliness, mystery of faith. In Ephesians 6.19, Paul says that the mystery is the mystery of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says that the mystery is Christ. Then in Colossians, three more times when he talks about mystery, he says the mystery is Christ. And so he uses all of these different words, mystery of godliness, mystery of the gospel, mystery of faith, mystery of Christ. What is he talking about? Well, he's referring to the same thing. All of these is the same thing. The mystery that was once hidden, now revealed, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. With the coming of Jesus, all that God had planned and prepared to do in the Old Testament is now fully revealed. You see, you've got to understand this. The gospel was not just something that God thought of one day. That there was a period of silence between the Old and the New Testament. God had a great idea that he would send Jesus into the world. No, not at all. From the Old Testament, God knew and planned. Therefore, he was making preparations and provisions to send a Savior. And in the Old Testament, we saw that he hinted at it, he foreshadowed it, he prophesied about it, and he promised it. And one way to think about this, then, is like this. Is, in the Old Testament, is the gospel there? And the answer is yes, the gospel is in the Old Testament. But why is it so unclear? Well, think about it this way. The gospel in the Old Testament is like furniture in a dimly lit room. It was there the whole time, but you could only see vague shapes and outlines of it. And this is how I think about it. Sometimes in the middle of the night, this is how I know I'm getting older, I wake up to go, because I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I go to the bathroom, when I wake up, I hate to turn the lights on because when you turn the lights on, then you get kind of more awake. And so, you know, I want to stay in that kind of comatose phase. And so, I, you know, I sometimes even I keep my eyes closed it's in the dark and, you know, I outstretch my hands and I try to fumble my way toward the bathroom very cautiously, very slowly. But inevitably, you know, you would think I would learn from this. I always end up stepping on something, tripping over something, or the worst is when I'm rushing too quickly. Sometimes I don't shut my door all the way, and I don't keep it open, so it's kind of in the middle, and I forget. So I walk right into the door, and then inevitably, I turn on the lights, and I'm screaming in pain and, and anger, really, and I'm clenching you know, my toe, my knee, my forehead. And when you turn on the light, that which you ran into, now is clearly in front of you. That which you stepped on is clearly exposed. It was always there. You couldn't see it, but it was always there. How do you know it was there? Because when you hit it and you screamed, 
the pain in your body saying that there is something there. In the same way, the gospel is in the Old Testament. In vague shapes. In vague outlines. But what happened is, when Jesus Christ came to the world, when Jesus Christ was born, when God sent his son, that was like God turning on the lights so that everything that pointed to Jesus in the Old Testament is now revealed. The mystery, which was once hidden, is now revealed. Everything that pointed to Jesus is clear. And so Paul here says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. The church's confession is this mystery concerning Jesus. Why, is this, why does this say mystery of godliness? Because godliness, Jesus Christ is the perfect expression of godliness. And your godliness can only come about when you are empowered by Jesus. The only source of your godliness is Jesus. So you can't read mystery of godliness and read into it mystery of goodliness. That's not what it says here. Some people say mystery of godliness. Oh, this is telling us how to be godly. Well, if that was the case, then what would follow would be six steps of how to be godly. But that's not what happened. Paul says here, great, indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he gives us six statements about Jesus Christ. Six statements about the gospel. And like I prayed right before we started, this is actually an ancient hymn. This is an ancient hymn that was most likely uh, early Christians had written, and it was a way for Christians to remember right doctrine, for Christians to remember what was true about Jesus. And so that's why it's written here very poetically. If you notice sometimes in the Bible, the lines are justified, right? But if you go to the books like the Psalms or the Prophets, you see that the lines aren't justified, that there's indents. That means it's poetry. And so here what we have is this ancient poem that Paul preserves for us as he writes it to Timothy. Just because it's an ancient hymn doesn't mean it's no longer the word of God or anything like that. It's still recorded for us in the scripture. It's still outbreathed by the Spirit. Uh, but it is an ancient hymn. And this was a hymn that the early church was declaring. And I think it's a hymn that we today, in the church in the 20, uh, 2017, we also need to be holding on to this. And so what I want to do is um, I'm just going to take each of these six verses and I'm going to turn them into points. So there's six points today. So you know, uh, double blessing. <laughs> so, point one, born to die. Born to die. The hymn begins like this. Look with me. He, that's referring to Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh. This is a reference to Jesus' incarnation. This is Christmas, Jesus coming to the world. In a very specific moment in time, God entered human history. Now think about that. The creator subjected himself to his own creation in two ways. First, God, who is eternally spirit, took on human flesh. He took on bones and blood. And he stooped by being born not as the rock, someone six feet four and built and chiseled. He didn't come into the world like that. He came into the world as a helpless baby who needed to be fed, who needed to be changed. He humbled himself when he came into the world. But secondly, God further condescended by entering and choosing to be bound by space and time. You know, space and time, if you were in the CB class, we've talked about this, is also part of God's creation. God submitted to his own created limitations. Now, I want you to really imagine that. God, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, one day opened his eyes and he couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, 
He couldn't change himself. He was born in a feeding trough. Imagine that kind of limitation. You know, one of my favorite, my favorite holidays, Thanksgiving. The reason I like Thanksgiving is because, um, yeah, there's friends and family and stuff. But, but it's really just a perfect excuse for a whole weekend to eat as much as you want without judgment <laughs> and putting gravy on anything and everything. That is, is the quintessential holiday. One thing I don't like about Thanksgiving is the effects of Thanksgiving weekend on the snugness of your clothes. You know, clothes that were once comfortable become uncomfortable. Um, shirts that once fit you well now become form-fitting, <laughs> and you don't want it to be form-fitting. Um, and that kind of restriction is such an inconvenience. Sometimes I put on shirts and I can't, like, stretch all the way. I can't tie my shoes. You feel restricted in your movement. And, and as I was thinking about God coming the flesh, I was thinking, the restriction that he felt He was everywhere, and one day he needed to walk to his destination. He was above time, but then one day he needed to sleep to function the next next day. I mean, just think about how God condescended, how much God condescended. He manifested himself in the flesh. The infinite one entered the finite creation. The ancient of days became an infant, and Jesus Christ became what he was not. He became a man. He took on flesh, he ate, he bled, he wept, he slept, and then eventually he died. And it was for this purpose that he came into the world. He came to die. Jesus Christ not only took on a human body, but he took on human nature. He became like us in every single way. And and think about it. This is the greatest disruption in human history. History itself, if you really think about it, is divided by the manifestation of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Because right now we use the politically correct uh, designations, BCE and CE, right? Before Common Era and Common Era. But some of you will remember before using the designations BC, before Christ, and AD, Anno Domini, right? In the year of our Lord. History itself was bending the knee at the coming of Jesus Christ in humility. History itself was acknowledging that the birth of the God-man come to the earth was universe-shaking, history-altering, cosmos-shattering. Jesus, the Word who was with God in the beginning, took on flesh, and he took on flesh to be a sacrifice for our sins. In order for Jesus to die as their substitute, he needed to be like one of us. And so he represented us fully in his humanity. Why? So that the exchange on the cross as he died to take our place, as our sins were transferred to him, exchanged to him, that his righteousness was given to us like a robe that we could wear. And so when God looked at his sinless son, he saw all of our sins attributed to him, and he punished him. And when he looked at us, who were sinful rebels, he saw all that Christ had done attributed to us, and he justified us. He welcomed us into his family. And you have to, so you have to understand, in this great moment in time, this specific moment, the preexistent son of God disrupted human history so that he could alter eternity for us. Great, we confess, is the mystery of Christ who was manifested in the flesh for our sake, for our sin, and for our salvation. Two, raised to life. The hymn continues, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, this is a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. 
Jesus Christ, he bore our sins. He was backstabbed and betrayed. He was falsely accused by the Jewish court. He was blindly given over to judgment to Pontius Pilate. He was crucified in a way deserving only of criminals, and then he was slain like an animal in the Old Testament. While on the cross, his body was like a cup that was being overflowed with the wrath of the Father's anger against sin. He was forsaken and he was abandoned in his hour of greatest need. Then his body was placed in a cutout tomb and there was silence. There was silence because his most devoted followers and disciples turned their backs, they hid themselves, and they kept quiet. And so for a moment, it seemed like history would forget what happened on that agonizing Friday evening on a hill outside Jerusalem's wall. Except it wasn't forgotten. It couldn't be forgotten. In fact, it was impossible for that day to become like any other day because Jesus Christ was unlike any other person and his death was, like, was unlike any other death. Because although Jesus was fully man, he was first and foremost fully God. He was the eternal son of God. Nobody else was like him. He lived the per a perfectly obedient and righteous life, and therefore his death was the only death in history that was not deserved. So, because he had a unique identity and he lived perfectly, in order to vindicate him, the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. The tomb couldn't stay shut. It was impossible for the tomb to stay shut. Have you ever given somebody the silent treatment because you are angry at them? The cold shoulder? And you're doing a pretty good job, I don't know, one hour, one week, however long it is. Just doing a good job. And then they do something funny or stupid. And you really want to laugh but you would feel stupid if you laugh because you're, you've been so committed to the silent treatment that now you want to, you, your lips want to part and, and, and laugh, but you can't. And so, you know, you're holding it in and there's that tension. And if it's funny enough, what happens? A smile breaks, a smirk breaks out. You know, there's that tension. Your will to keep your lips shut and the joy, you know, the greater first joy surfacing and there's that tension And when laughter comes out, your scowl breaks and your lips part and there's a heartiness that comes out. In the same way, the stone was covering the tomb and wouldn't let Jesus out. Why? Because Jesus had died. But the stone couldn't contain the sinless, guiltless, blameless, perfect Son of God who by the Spirit overcame the grave, and so the stone wall had to roll away. And Jesus Christ was vindicated. He was declared an acceptable sacrifice on the behalf of sinners. He was raised from the dead in triumphant glory. And being raised to life, as Jesus Christ ascended out of that tomb, the world that had been holding its breath let out a global sigh of relief. Why? Because his resurrection saved the tragic story of Christ's death. Every story we know wants to have a happily ever after. And here was the Son of God now in the tomb. And the world was saying, can this be it? But when the angel declared 
he's not here, he is risen. The world could sigh because it finally got the happily ever after ending that it so wanted. And that ending is available to you and me because Jesus was raised to life. Because he was raised to life, now you and I are promised one day that we'll be raised to life. Because in his resurrection, death was defeated. History is no longer the end of man's story because there's an eternity promised. You see, before, death was just a giant period. It marked the end of your life. Period. Done. Conclusion. Finality. But because Jesus Christ raised from the dead, vindicated by the Spirit, death is not a period. Death is now a comma. Death has just concluded the prologue, and it's opening up the story to eternity that follows. Great, we confess, is the mystery of Christ who was vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection glory. Third, witnessed by angels. Paul continues, he was, as Jesus was seen by the angels. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection were all events that the angels witnessed. So the question is, this seems out of place. Why is this in this ancient hymn? And here's the reason. Because what Jesus Christ did in interrupting human history, in altering the course of history, it was so grand, it was so amazing, that it attracted the attention of heaven itself. In the same way that some news, it's so trivial, it's so unimportant that it only makes the local news channels, but some news is so important, so momentous that it makes what? National, international headlines. So too, what Christ accomplished in his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection was so grand that even the heavens turned to it. Even the angels witnessed it. And so Peter actually writes in 1 Peter 1 that the gospel, Jesus Christ and all he's done is so amazing that it says the angels long to look into it. I love that phrase, the angels long to look into it. Why? Do you know why the angels would be so interested in the events and the work of Jesus Christ? And the answer is this, because the angels will never experience and they will never know Christ's redeeming grace and sacrificial love like you and I. The angels don't get the opportunity to have the gospel applied to their life. For this reason, every angel in heaven has every reason to be envious of you. You are all, I don't know what your high school was like, but you guys are all the cool kids now. The angels look and they say, I want that. They can only look at the gospel from a distance. It's like a precious jewel on display set under a protective glass, securely guarded. All they can do is admire its beauty. But the gospel can never adorn them and make them beautiful. They witnessed the gloom of the crucified Messiah. They saw the glory of the resurrected Savior and yet they could gain nothing from it. So why are they interested? Why did they look? Why did they witness this? Why did they see this? Because it was so wonderful. It was so great. It didn't incite disinterest from them, but wide-eyed wonder. I don't know about you, but I, like, I gravitate towards the things that I like, things that affect me, things that involve me. 
when you're talking with somebody and, and you overhear your name dropped in another conversation, your attention is shifted. Your interest is piqued. You hear your name. You're, what are they saying about me? You know that because when you're talking, then you just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But you're secretly listening. Why? Because you're involved and you want to know what's going on. And of course, there are times that maybe we're in the fellowship hall and we're walking towards somebody we, we're going to go talk to them and we, we know they're talking about politics or um, cars, stock market, gardening, things that you don't really care about, things that don't interest you. And so you're walking toward them with donut and coffee and you hear this conversation. So what? Like NASA changing its course on a, aborting a mission, you turn around and you, you try to find another conversation. Why? Because you don't want to get caught up in that which you're not interested in, things that don't involve you. And yet the angels, salvation had nothing to do with that. I mean, th th those in heaven are in heaven. Those who have sided with Satan have sided with Satan. They're not saved. Yet the angels, because the gospel and what Christ has done is so marvelous, they're interested. They want to look into it. We who get to hover around the gospel and see it and apply it and try it on like the precious jewels that make us beautiful, the angels, they're on the outside. <laughs> They're just trying to grab a peek. And yet the gospel is so beautiful that in heaven, John records in Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain. This is the song of the angels. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the angels' song. Because they see how wonderful what Christ has done. Great, we confess, is the mystery of Christ who was seen by the angels. Four, witness to the nations. Not only was Jesus Christ witnessed by the angels and the hosts of heaven, but he must now be witnessed to the whole earth. So the hymn continues. He was proclaimed among the nations. Now, if you want to break this hymn down, the first three lines are unrepeatable moments in history. Jesus will not be incarnated again. Jesus will not be resurrected again. All of this will not be witnessed by the angels. This will never happen again. But the next two, Christ proclaimed among the nations and Christ believed on in the world. This is an ongoing process. This is how God is moving history forward. This is the cause of global missions. It says here that he's proclaimed. Now, that's great. We want the proclamation of Christ. But we want that everywhere. We want that in every church. We want that in every Sunday. We want that in every sermon. But that's not what he's saying. We're saying Christ proclaimed among the nations, witnessed and shared to all people. This is how God is advancing his kingdom. This is how God is working in the world. You know, last Wednesday, we saw the film on West Africa and it was amazing to see the work that God is doing there. I left really encouraged. I left really blessed. But as I thought about it, I mean, that was just a one-hour clip covering just one mission agency that was just working with a handful of missionaries in just a few villages in just three countries of West Africa. And West Africa is just one part of Africa. And Africa is just one of seven continents on which the nations are scattered. God is doing a great work. And how is he pushing his work forward in the world? How is he pushing history forward? He's doing it by the proclamation of Christ to the nations. What is God most concerned with? He's most concerned with getting the name of Jesus out. This is the purpose for which God is directing history. Listen to this 
In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Why isn't the end coming? Why doesn't Jesus return right now? You know, in the world, there is so much suffering, there's so much persecution, there's so much evil, there's so much brokenness. There's so many times that people have prayed, I've personally prayed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Why doesn't he come? Because there's still so much more to be done. There are still so many more places for Jesus' name to be witnessed. There are so, still so many more people to be reached. There are still nations for him to claim. When will the end come? And the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. History is progressing forward toward this destination, and each step forward is an advance in the church's witness for Christ. Now, here's how I imagine it. I imagine history is like a bicycle. And the work of pedaling is the work of proclamation. So every time the gospel goes out, the gear turns and we move one step closer to the destination. Now, if that's true, and if this is true, then how does the church, how are we supposed to respond? One in, one in three ways. First, as a church, we can contribute nothing and we can hitch a free ride. What do I mean by that? As a kid, do you ever remember hanging out with your friends? I don't know if you had a bike or not, but let's say you didn't have a bike at that moment and your friends wanted to go somewhere. Right, you didn't want to be the guy who was running <laughs> while everyone's on their bike. So what would you do? You would hitch a ride. Two want to see it would be uncomfortable, so you do the incredibly dangerous thing of sitting on the handlebars. <laughs> it's not only dangerous for you, but the guy behind you can't see. Um, or you sat on the frame of the bike, right, sideways. You hitched a ride. Now, hitching a ride, you both got to your destination, but it wasn't a joint effort. You only got there by somebody else's toil, somebody else's labor, somebody else's sweat. In the same way, our church can do nothing, and God is going to fulfill the plan of history. He's sovereign. He will accomplish his will and his purpose. The gospel will go out to all nations. The question is, will we be contributing to the nations, or are we cruising on the handlebars? We could sit back, and we could do nothing, and God will bring the gospel to the nations, and the end will come. And then we'll get to heaven, and we say, well, God would say, well, what did you guys do? We rode on the handlebars. Is that what we want to say? Well, second, what we can do is we can impede or we can get in the way of the gospel. What I mean by this is um, when I was a kid, my cousins and I used to ride our bikes all throughout the neighborhood, and there was this one elementary school, and there was a huge baseball field. In order to get to the baseball field, you had to go down a hill. And the first time when I was young, I tried to go down the hill, and it was really steep, and all my cousins took off, and I was the youngest of them. And I said, well... YOLO, you only live once. So I went down, and the further I went, the more speed I was picking up, and the more speed I was picking up, I was going faster, and I started getting really nervous, and I started shaking, I was scared. So what did I do? I pressed my brakes. Now, let me tell you this, if you don't know it, it's a life lesson. You should never press the brakes all the way when you're going down a hill. Because as I found out why, when I pressed the brakes, my bike stopped. My body kept going, and I flipped over my handlebars, 
And in panic, I held to, to the bike, and I was just tumbling down the hill with my bike. Then I got enough sense to let go of the bike, and I just rolled all the way down the hill where I met my cousins. <laughs> now, did I make it to my destination? Sure, I did. <laughs> I rolled all the way down <laughs> to the field. Was that the preferred way to get there? No, it wasn't. In the same way, God is going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to get to the destination with or without us. Christ will be proclaimed among the nations. But trust me, the way we don't want to get there is by rolling all the way down. You see, pressing the brakes is like being a hindrance to the gospel proclamation. We don't want to slow down. We don't want to interfere. We don't want to be an obstacle or a stumbling block to Christ being proclaimed and made Known, meaning what? We don't want to be a church that hinders the progress of the gospel by being unfaithful to his message. We don't want to give bad witness to others. We don't want to be a church that's so ingrown and, and develops the country club mentality that when people come in, they automatically realize this is not a church for me. We don't want to press the brakes when God's intention is for the gospel to go out to the nations. Well, that's the second way. Well, what's the third way? The third way is that we get on the bike and we pedal, and we pedal hard. To understand the course and direction that God is leading us and joining and being on board. He's given us the destination. He's told us where we're going. He told us how we're going to get there. How are we going to get there? The church needs to engage in global missions. So whether that means you guys individually are going, or we as a church, we're sending, we're supporting, we're praying, we're encouraging, and we're giving, we are to be involved in Christ's proclamation to the world. This is how the gospel works. The gospel fuels its own advancement. Take a ball, for example. What is the very essence of a, of a ball? How do you know? When is it most being a ball? When it's being bounced, when it's being tossed, when it's being thrown, when it's sitting in a little container, yeah, it's a ball, but it's not most fully a ball. The gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is most fully the gospel when it's going out, when it's being shared, when it's changing lives. When the gospel is housed in this little church, housed in my little heart, and I love Jesus because the Bible tells me so, and that's all the gospel is, yeah, it's the gospel, but it's not most fully the gospel. Which means this, if we want to be a gospel-centered church, we need to participate in the mission of taking the gospel out to the nations. So to be gospel-centered necessarily means to be gospel-proclaiming and gospel-promoting. But here's where it's important. Promoting the gospel doesn't necessarily have to happen only in our church. The way that we contribute in gospel promotion is by seeing the gospel promoted in another church, in another community, in another county, in another country. We just need to be involved. Why? Great, we confess, is the mystery of Christ, who was, is, and will be proclaimed among the nations. And this is not a matter of preference, but of utmost priority. Five, received in faith. The hymn then says that Christ was believed on in the world. The world received him in faith. God's purpose for the gospel was always for people to believe. You know, at the earliest discovery, Apostle John saw the empty tomb, and he saw and believed. Mary Magdalene saw the angel, met Jesus, and she says, I've seen the Lord. Doubting Thomas said, I'm not going to believe Jesus till I see the marks. And then he saw Jesus, and he said, my Lord and my God. Many people in these great encounters in the Bible, they came to believe in Jesus. But 
Jesus resurrected, Jesus ascended into heaven, and there's no more personal appearances. There's no more personal encounters. But how are men and women still being drawn to him? How are men and women still coming to faith? And the answer is the church. The church is the vehicle for God's mission. You know, on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Bible says that 3,000 souls came to know the Lord. 3,000, that's much more than when Jesus was here on the earth. Then Luke, in the book of Acts, writes this, and, you know, sometimes when I read this, I think, man, Luke, you just got lazy. This is what he writes. And the Lord added to their number day to day those who were being saved. Why, why do I think it was lazy? Because before he was keeping track this many thousand, and then it was just too much, and he was like, forget it. The Lord was adding every day. <laughs> How? How is this happening? Because the church was being faithful to its call. When the church is faithful to its call to proclaim Jesus among the nations, many more are being saved than when Jesus was walking on the earth. This is why Jesus himself says that you guys will do greater things than I will. The, the Lord is using the church to take the gospel out, but I can say this with certainty. There is one, this, I can say this with 100% certainty. There is one group, one demographic who will never, ever, ever believe in Jesus Christ no matter what direction God has said. There's one group who will never, ever believe on in him and receive him in faith. And that's those who have never heard the name of Christ. You know, when we think about them, it's, it's with absolute sh certainty and surety that we can say they will not know Jesus Christ. And so Paul's words in Romans cannot ring more true when he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard? You know, because we know that the Lord will save those who will believe, we should never think when it comes to mission, we should never think that our prayers or our financial support or something like this two-week focus or the sermons on missions or Bible studies on missions or short-term truth, we should never consider that to be wasteful and unnecessary. Why? Because great we confess is the mystery of Christ who was and is and continues to be believed on in the world and received in faith. Lastly, and I'll end with this, received in glory. The sixth and final line declares that Jesus was taken up in glory. Now, this does not mean that Jesus, uh, this is not in reference to Jesus' ascension. Some people think, oh, Jesus was manifested, he came to the earth, and then how does it end? He was received in heaven, he was ascended. That's not, because if it was, then it should have come after seen by the angels. The, chron the chronological order doesn't work out. So what, is, what, is it, what does this mean? He will be taken up, or he is taken up in glory. It's the promise of a coming event. So what we said is the three events, non-repeatable, this will never happen again. The next two, Jesus being proclaimed, Jesus being believed. That was ongoing. The last one is a future event. The question is, and I hope that you are thinking critically about this, how is this a future event? It says taken up in glory. That's past tense. How is that a future event? And I would say this. Christ's return, Christ's exaltation on the last day is so certain, the Bible writes it, as if it's already been complete. You say, well, that's a stretch, and I'll say, well, no, it isn't. Because when a really good friend comes up to you and asks for a favor, and they say, will you do this for me? How do you respond? Done. Do they say, well, grammatically, 
you haven't done it yet. How can it? When you say done, what do you mean? With certainty, I will do this so you can consider it done. In the same way, Jesus Christ will come again in the fullness of glory. Heaven, earth, history, eternity, all headed toward Jesus Christ being glorified. It is so certain that the Apostle Paul can write that he is taken up in glory. It is done. All of creation was created for this purpose. So Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For Jesus Christ, the end goal of history, all for the sake of of Christ, so that he would be received in glory by the angels and the hosts of heaven, that he would be received in glory by the redeemed. Now, these six verses here, or these six lines, summarize history. God has broken into our world. God has hijacked the steering wheel, and God is bringing us back on track to where we are supposed to be. We were always headed toward glory before sin entered the world. And Jesus Christ comes, breaks into the car, takes the steering wheel, takes us back on the detour. Where does that detour take us? That detour takes us from Christ's cradle to Christ's cross, and now the destination is Christ's crown. So with Jesus crowned in glory before us, with Christ's cradle and his cross behind us, we press on in Christian mission. With certainty, we tread forward because we know Jesus, the hope of the nation, he is calling on the world to receive him. Great, we confess, is the mystery of Christ who was taken up in glory. Church, Cornerstone, as we end mid-March missions, I don't plan on talking about missions again for a while. We're going to start Matthew. We're going to be in that for, I think I said 20 weeks. I'm probably planning 25 I've already thought, you know, in July we're going to do eight weeks in Proverbs and we're going to do uh, this great series on wisdom. Yeah, we're not going to go back to missions for a while. But that does not mean it's lost its importance. That does not mean that it should be out of sight, out of mind. My prayer has been that the Holy Spirit is writing missions on your heart. That he is writing the joy of all people that he is moving you in a way that you, on your own volition, will pray for missions. You will pick a country to love and, and intercede on behalf. You will seek out missionaries and seek out ways to give and seek out ways to get involved. Now, I'm, I'm, let me close with this. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I have it here on the PowerPoint. Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 31, 32, a very sobering verse. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We were all once goats, but now made sheep by the shepherd because of his sacrifice. But there are still many more whom the Father has given to his Son. And so let us be prayerful for all men and women from every nation and tongue and every language and people that they too will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd who sacrificed himself for them and that they would follow him. I exhort you, Cornerstone, as a charge 
from the word of God itself through us and our mission may Christ be proclaimed among all the nations for the joy of all people for the glory of God pray with me Father we thank you so much for missions it's by missions that we are even here Father, the gospel, somebody in history decided, I'm going to be obedient to God. And then other people supported him. They prayed for him or her. They financially invested. They encouraged. And this missionary went out and they shared the gospel. They started a church. And somewhere in history, somebody in our family or somebody we knew believed in Jesus And the gospel kept on going down the lines and it reached us. Whether we were born in Christian homes or whether we were evangelized, Father, we know that we're here because somebody was obedient to your call. And then we think of those all around the world, Lord, who have nobody in their social circle, nobody in their family, who has heard of Jesus. And with utmost certainty, we can say, if they do not know Jesus, they will not know the redeeming love of Christ. And so with that burdened heart, God, we ask that you would empower us, just a little little church in Chalfont, to engage in this global call so that Christ would go out, and that many would believe. So Father, as you are working in our church, and in every local church, we pray that we are taking your commission, we are taking your gospel, and we are invading the kingdom of darkness, that we are breaking down Satan's strongholds, that all the gates that the evil one has set up, the gospel would overcome, Christ triumphant would be declared and that all people would know you and then the end will come. Lord, move us to that end. Empower us by your gospel. Motivate us by your love and send us out in obedience. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Receive now the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the hope of all the nations, and the love of God, the Father Almighty, who has it in his heart for the gospel to go out because he desires all to be saved, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who changes hearts, not only of those who are to believe, but he changes our hearts to send us out and to give to pray, and to participate. May the blessing of this triune God be with God's people, both now and forevermore. Amen. Please hear the dismissal. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Go in peace.